Welcome to Andy and Andre Talk Money Stuff. Although Andy is the Oracle of Charnwood, he is not your guru. We are not your financial advisors. Please listen to the end of this episode for a full disclaimer. Thank you for listening. Money, talking about money stuff. <laughs> All right, here we are. We're back again with a new host, part part of the team now. James, welcome aboard. Thank you. <laughs> I think technically you're the host, Andre. Yeah, and um, oh, we're three. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> like, you, you you ask the questions and and um, you're like the Joe Rogan, and okay. we're we're the guests. We just happen to be regular guests. Okay. <laughs> and then Stephen Hawkins has has joined with, with the introduction at the beginning. <laughs> How dare you? Um, do a disclaimer of uh, your attitude. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the attitudes reflected at Andrew's alone and not everybody else's. Yeah. Well, how was everyone's? How was everyone's week? Yeah, I got I got Windows installed. Yeah, and um, the the quote I got in Canberra was thirty three zero thousand dollars. Yes, and the Sydney quote was um, let's say nineteen to keep things simple. Yes, this is um, on your computer, isn't it? No, nah, no, nah, like yeah, <laughs> double glazing, and yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway, so yeah, Sydney was uh well, about sixty five percent of the Canberra price, and and they're willing to come down from they Sydney. Did. They came down. I had to pay their accommodation costs, but yeah, yeah still saved um, ten grand versus camper prices. Yeah, right. Really? Yeah, I had a, an annoying concrete job in my driveway that was uh, it was so small, no one looked at it. And there was one guy that I tried like the very last, and he, but he was so responsive. He replied to my email in like two minutes, and then was out two weeks later, and it's all done. So. Yeah, but uh, yeah, did he use Rio Mesh? Yeah, he did. To put on a little of stirrups. He put he put dowels. So oh yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So drill, I had drill a plumbing in. problem. We had to cut through the driveway in there. So yeah. there was like a six foot by three foot sort of hole there, and uh, now it looked pretty pretty epic. And plus, it was stamped as well. And he did a really good job um, stamping. So, anyways, cool. But uh, yeah. Oh shit! Excuse me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> pro audio here. Um, uh, okay, so we'll. We were thinking of uh, – we were talking about discussing stagflation and things like that. So I've heard that term pop up a lot. I haven't investigated it at all. Just seen, you know, video titles. Ben Shapiro reckons it's Joe Biden's fault. Um, So if you guys could illuminate what stagflation is for me, please. Um, So broadly, if you like inflation so much, you get really turned on. You get a massive stagflation. That's the definition, isn't it, James? <laughs> <laughs> like just being super excited about inflation. How dare you? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe if we can start a little bit uh, at the beginning in terms of, so if you think about, um, you know, uh, economic growth mm-hmm. and uh, inflation, two separate concepts, um, and you can have either, you know, low economic growth or high economic growth and low inflation or high inflation. Um, stagflation is a situation where you have low economic growth and um, high inflation. A stagnant economy mm-hmm. with high inflation. So yeah, the economy okay. is stagnant and you have inflation. So does that just mean 
is that like kind of a good thing because you've like reached the top of the inflation or something because people will no, stop buying stuff? It's like a Zimbabwe thing or a um, 1920s Germany kind of thing. So basically the idea is, right, the economic activity isn't occurring. Mm. So there's unemployment, people aren't going out and spending money and being happy the way they used to, but nonetheless things are expensive. Mm-hmm. And so you've got, you've got a double whammy. You've got bad economic conditions with prices going up. You, what, 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 what's supposed to be a good thing is, I don't think it's a good thing. Austrian economist, economists aren't into this, but um, what, what, what the traditional narrative is, is you want inflation and you also want a growing economy. Mm-hmm. And they kind of offset each other to some extent. Mm-hmm. So prices go up, but also your wages went up and, yep. and there are more people employed and asset prices are going up. <clears throat> That's supposed to be a good thing. Um, if, if employment's going down, wages potentially going down and all that sort of stuff, um, stagnating in that area, mm-hmm. but prices are still going up, that means just people have, um, they can't afford to live as easily. It's yeah. cost of living relative to incomes goes up. So would you say- I'm not getting paid more, but I'm paying more for everything. Would you say we're observing that now? Because I've been watching uh, and reading a lot about uh, rental markets, like mm-hmm. people at the at the bottom end getting getting booted out um, from like lack of properties and the prices are getting too high. Um, there was a, a caravan park in the south of Brisbane that it's like um, people that can't rent are having to stay there. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I've come across quite a few stories like that. And there's been a bit of a move of people, say, from with uh, work work from home arrangements, where people have moved out of the city, yes, um, on good incomes, yes, or, or better incomes into sort of more <coughs> regional areas, mm-hmm. and there isn't necessarily the properties available, mm. and so um, yeah, that you know people coming from the cities can afford to pay higher rents, mm-hmm. and people who are already there. Yeah, uh, not so much in a position to um, you know compete in the in terms of uh, the the price of the you know the rental property that they're trying to trying to live in. Mm. Um, so it is that is um, a bit of a bit of a problem. Um, I guess just uh, going back to uh, you know uh, inflation in general mm. um, and and growth. Normally, like the best kind of scenario is a scenario where you have good economic growth but low inflation. Mm-hmm. And stagflation is actually the opposite of that, where you've yep. got um, – you have uh, poor economic growth, mm-hmm. but high inflation. Recession uh, and high inflation as well. Like, Well, yes, yes. Yeah. So this is non-growth, like, opposite of growth. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> is this like a cyclical thing? Like will have we had this before and, and will it will something happen and we – so th- there are examples of um, the various, say, going back to those sort of four scenarios between high and low economic growth and high and low inflation. Mm. Um, an example of the stagflation would be in the 1970s, mm-hmm. uh, where we had um, you know rising inflation, uh, you know rising interest rates, but also rising unemployment, mm. poor economic growth. Um, and so it's generally not a sort of a pleasant time. Um, because you're both battling rising prices, and it's also not easy to, you know, to for employment's difficult. Um, so that that's it is quite a difficult uh, one of the more difficult scenarios of the of you know economic situations. Mm. Uh, I think we need to do a bit of um, housekeeping 
first. Um, this this conversation is going to be problematic as it progresses if we don't address a couple of things. Yep, cool. So, um, one, we need to define inflation. Yes. So, Milton Friedman mm-hmm. said that inflation is always a monetary phenomenon, mm-hmm. um, that being that when there's more money in the system with the same amount of goods, then the price of the goods rises. And, and again, it's, you know, you've got an economy with 100 cans of Coke in the economy and $100 in the economy, can of Coke's a dollar. Mm-hmm. You put $200 in the economy, so now there's $200 in the economy and um, 100 cans of Coke, then the cans of Coke go up to $2 and that's, that's inflation. Mm-hmm. Um, but not everyone talks about inflation that way and I think we need to... We'd have to define the terms, or at least come to some sort of understanding, and then and then consistently um, speak with that definition in mind. Because there's there's always talk with inflation, and we've got to separate inflation versus price going up. Because sometimes price goes up because of supply and demand, <coughs> and and it's not necessarily monetary supply. So maybe. Um, the, the price of Coke in this economy where there's 100 cans of Coke and $100, maybe the price of Coke fluctuates between $0.80 cents and $1.20. And it's it's $1.20 in summer on a hot day and it's $0.80 cents in winter on a cold day, mm-hmm. even though there's the same amount of money in the system. Yep. So we've got to separate price go up because of other factors that has nothing to do with money supply versus price go up because of money supply. And there's also that, you know, Peter Schiff, say, will constantly define inflation as inflation of the money supply and the consequence of inflation of the money supply is an increase in prices. But mm-hmm. generally when you hear um, people talk about inflation, they're talking about the actual increase in prices. Mm. Um, so what do you want to, how do you want to, because we're, it's go, we're going to cross over a lot of, uh, stuff that is increasing prices. We should call when prices go up and it's nothing to do with the money supply or at least we're isolating it is not related to the money supply. We call it price go up <laughs> right? and And then when it's, um, when it's inflationary, when it's, we, we call it... Um, when it's related to an increase in the money supply. Yeah, we call it, um, we can say price inflation or something like that. Okay. Yep. So we use the word inflation yep. in the same sentence as price yep. when we see it as a, a monetary supply yep. inflation phenomenon. Yep. And and that means you and I, James, are, are taking this as a premise that inflation is a monetary phenomenon. We're, yes. we're in the Milton Friedman school there. Yep. By the way, guys, um, check out Milton Frieden, Friedman um, lectures and stuff. It's um, I like them. Yep. Um, and just while we're on that, we, we you know, he's got a very famous uh, formula, which is MV equals PQ, which is basically um, the PQ is price times quantity. So back to Andy's cans of Coke, mm-hmm. um, they've got a price and there's a certain number of them, you know, made in the economy or mm-hmm. available in the economy. And um, M is the money supply and V is the velocity. So basically what it's saying is the amount of money that you have in the economy multiplied by how fast it's travelling, mm-hmm. so how, how quickly people are spending it, equals the price times the quantity of goods. So you can affect things. So, for instance, if you had an increase in the money supply, mm-hmm. 
the velocity stayed the same, uh, but you also had an increase in the quantity of goods in the in the economy. Mm-hmm. Um, the price would stay the same. What's the metric for velocity? Like, how, how would you describe it? Uh, I don't have a technical definition, but it's yeah. ba- basically how quickly people are, are spending money. So, yeah. you know, a slow would velocity would be people, you know, saving their money and repaying debts and mm-hmm. doing okay. that. A, a fast yeah. velocity would be, you know, where, where people are, you know, get their paycheck and spend it straight away. Yes. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And, and if you think, uh, I mean, I don't, I don't want to muddy the waters with the inflation talk, but the environment that would lead to high velocity would be if there was hyperinflation. You're working in the morning, you get paid your wheelbarrow full of notes that are worthless at lunchtime, you rush to the bakery to spend that to get the loaf of bread because it's going to double in price by mm. the afternoon. The baker then takes your money and rushes to get the, the flour and all that sort of stuff. And then whoever sold the flour rushes somewhere with that money. So in a, in a hyperinflationary environment, typically money's like a hot potato that no one, like people get off their hands as quickly as possible. So that's very high velocity. That, that, that's an, and that's <clears throat> an actual example in, in Weimar, Germany, where, where uh, factory workers were paid at lunchtime and at the end of the day. Mm. Um, and there's very funny examples where there's a classic sort of one you learn in school history um, where uh, this... I think it's like a lady turns up to like she's got a, a like a wheelbarrow full of money to go down to um, the bread shop mm. to get bread, mm. and she's um, got left left leaves the wheelbarrow outside while she goes into to you know select what she wants, and she comes out to get the the money to to pay for the bread, mm. and someone's tipped all the money out and run off with the wheelbarrow. <laughs> yeah. Um- I was going to say something else. Um, yeah, the, the other thing about the velocity of money when, when James is mentioning it. So w- the velocity is constant in, in this formula that he's using from Milton Friedman. Just imagine stable constant velocity, just call it velocity zero. And then 10% more money is in the system, but there's also 10% more goods in general in the system. Then in theory, that's not inflationary. That, that's what you're saying. Yes, yes. Um, and then obviously if we get this... Um, the the hyperinflation behavior where someone gets money and spends it straight away and then the next person who receives that money gets it and spends it straight away in theory that's higher velocity of money so it's 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 it's, it's zero plus something it's a positive number now and that should lead to actual price inflation is that real inflation is that is that is that price go up sorry or is that actual inflation the velocity of money's increased. Um, the amount of money hasn't. So money, money, money. The amount of money in the system's the same. Amount of goods in the system are the same. Velocity increases. Is that price go up here or is that inflation? Uh, I would have normally said inflation, but I. I, I, I think it's inflation that, too, but yeah. I don't. I'm not. I don't know enough. Need yeah. to read more. Um, <laughs> we'll just we'll just be clear about what we're saying. Yeah, yeah. And, and the other thing is as well, um, you could have money in the system, uh, and you you know you got a um, hundred cans of coke, hundred dollars in the system. All of a sudden, a hundred dollars is put into the system extra. So now you got twenty dollars in the system, and that extra hundred dollars just sits under someone's mattress. Mm-hmm. There's more money in the system, but zero velocity. And in theory, prices are stable still, right? Until that yes. actually gets out into the economy under my mattress, it's not affecting anything with with zero velocity. 
So there's a, there's a bit of playing with that, the money existing but then also being put into the economy and moving around and having velocity. And, and there's, there's actually – Japan's actually a good example of this occurring. Um, I think government debt in Japan is something like 300% of GDP. Um, they've had very stable prices for a, for a very long period of time. So they had a big boom which ended in 1989 um, with a big stock market and property crash. Uh, but basically they've had a huge amount – the central bank's done a huge amount of stimulus. They've had zero interest rates for, you know, 30 years, over 30 years. Um you know, they're, they're uh, creating a whole lot of money and buying government debt. Apparently the central bank, I don't, can't remember the figure, but the central bank owns a large proportion of the government's mm-hmm. uh, debt. They've they've printed a whole lot of money and bought that. Um, but there's still, even now, uh, where we are getting a bit of inflation coming through, uh, inflation rates in Japan are still quite low. Hmm. So it's, it's an interesting uh, example of where you can situation where there's a lot of money that has been created but you don't end up with increases in prices and and just to to uh, flesh out a bit of what James said so the GDP is gross domestic product which is the total you, value of goods and services in the economy yep okay so in, if you bought everything that's available to buy in the economy yep. that's your, your GDP yeah, it's what, it's what the economy has produced yep. in, in, in that given time period. So um, what were we saying about GDP in Japan? It's um, been so, so going down or flat, what were we saying about it? Uh, well, it's, they've had quite stagnant growth, but their, their um, increases in prices have been very small um, over the last 30 years. Yeah, so the, so the so GDP hasn't really been going up. Mm. There's not there's the the amount of goods and services produced in the economy year on year hasn't changed very much. Yet yet the government's taken on heaps more debt, which you would think would then feed into prices going up, but prices haven't really gone up. Yes, yes. Okay. And, and the, the interesting thing, so obviously if the government was just uh, you know issuing bonds and people were you know. Um, they were just being privately funded, people were buying them off the market, um, then that wouldn't be an increase in the money supply. But it's, it's a large portion of it is central bank creating new money to purchase government debt. So there has been a large increase in the money supply, um, but there hasn't been a large increase in prices. Yeah, and, and, and just to, to explain that a bit. So yeah, the, the idea is that the government... Makes all these promises to the population when they get elected. We'll pay for education, we'll pay for hospitals, we'll pay for roads, and they need to fund that somehow. And the tax dollars the government receives doesn't always fund all the promises the government's made, so the government needs money to, to pay for all the things they've promised to buy in, in their election campaigns. And... What they do is they issue government bonds, which are IOUs, saying if you give us money now, we'll give you money back in the future. So a bond is a promissory note. My word is my bond. The government gives you their word. They'll return money to you plus interest at some point in the future. And the IOUs could be bought by Japanese people, Australian people, anybody. But let's just say it's Japanese mum and dads buying the government bonds, 
then what they do is they take money out of their pocket and put it in the government's pocket and they take the bond that was in the government's pocket and put it in their pocket. So they've just swapped the money for a bond. In theory, there's no more money in the system because of that. The, the, the money supply is the same. Mum and dad just put it in the hands of the government instead and then the government will put it in the hands of someone who builds a road or something, but there's no more money because of that. So the, the thing when we hear about money printing and all that sort of stuff is the, the story that's said is that the governments will write the bonds, they'll issue a promissory note, a give me money now, I'll pay you back later. And the central banks who can create money, whereas mom and dad can't, then say, okay, sure, we'll give you money. And then they do some sort of magic and the government has money and the central bank has the bond. And in theory, now there's more money in the system. Mm-hmm. Any questions around that, Andre? Um, I don't know if it's a directly related question, but the idea of bonds. So, with what's going on with the economy now, is is it a good time to buy bonds? I, well, I mean, if you're a deflationist, yes. Yeah. But the th- the idea is, if if you bought a bond, say the government, Japanese government, let's just go with this, right? Says, lend me a whole bunch of money. And I'll pay you back in the future and mm. I'll pay you 2% per annum mm. for that. So I'll pay you back what you've lent me, but I'll also give you 2% interest yeah. per year to make it worth your while. And then if, if the interest rate that you can get in the market and a safe interest rate in the market mm. is 5%, the risk-free rate, uh, which is lending to the Japanese government, mm. is 5%, then you wouldn't lend to them at 2%. Yeah. So if people lent to the Japanese government at 2% and then the interest rate went from 2% to 5%, the people who lent to the Japanese government at 2% would be like, oh man, yeah, we're, we, 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 um, we made a mistake here. Had yeah. we waited, we would have got 5%. Yeah, okay. So when interest rates are rising, let's say I bought that bond of the Japanese government, right? I bought the Japanese government bond. I paid them the, the value of the bond for that. Um, you know, they wanted a, a billion yen. So I gave them a billion yen and they're giving me 2% of a billion yen per mm. year. This isn't how all bonds work, but yep. just for a simple thing. So they give me 2% per year of that billion and then in 30 years, they're going to give me the billion back as well. Yep. Right? Um, so now I own this bond. I, I own a contract with the Japanese government which guarantees me 2% of a billion yen per year mm-hmm. and a billion yen in the future. Mm-hmm. In theory, that's worth something. Yep. It's worth at least a billion yen. Yep. Um, so I should be able to sell it to somebody. And there's a market for bonds. I've bought it, but it's for sale. If, if the Japanese government is saying we're now paying 5%, my bond that's only paying 2% looks really crap compared to a 5% bond. Mm, so yeah. even though the other bond's a billion dollars face value as well, yeah. It's 5% per year. Yes. So the billion dollar face value bond, same. Mine's billion dollar face value, the other one's billion dollar face value. Mm. My one pays 2%, the other one pays 5%. Yeah. My bond sucks compared to the 5% one. Yes. Effectively, I'm losing 3% a year compared to the other guy. Yep. So that's how bond prices can be affected. So if interest rates are rising, is it, and, and say we know for a fact, we don't, but let's just say we know for a fact the Japanese government's going to offer 8% in 12 months. Mm. Should I buy a 30-year bond that's paying 5% now? Yeah. No, because I'll wait 12 months and get one for 8%. And if it's a 30-year bond, that, that 
difference between 5% and 8% or 2% and 5%, that's that's 3%. Mm. Effectively, I'm missing out on 3% every year for 30 years. Yes. That's a big difference. So with those big long ones, what's what's the main reason you would do something so big and so so long? A lot of the time it's things like, uh, say, um, you know, pension funds, you know, superannuation funds, insurance companies, they might have to match um, their liabilities with um, – yeah, okay. so they have long-term liabilities, so they want to make sure their cash flows, uh, their long-term cash flows meet yeah. their liabilities so they can match everything up because it's more important for them to ensure that they can fund something than to, say, maximise their return. Mm. Um, uh, and, and it's also, I guess – Generally speaking, you'd think of government bonds as being um, the most uh, secure asset in terms of getting repaid the money. Yeah. Because you, for the most part, there's not really um, the risk that governments will default mm-hmm. uh, because in the end, even if they can't raise the tax revenue, it's quite likely that the central bank will create the money to buy yeah, the okay. bonds anyway. So, yeah, just that, on their own currency. It's unlikely oh, yes. a government will default on their own currency. Yep. You hear about other other countries like Argentina, all, all sorts of developing nations yes. actually borrow in US dollars mm. and they can't print US dollars, so they default on the bonds. But if they borrowed in Argentinian pesos, mm. it's likely they'll just print pesos to pay. Yeah. Well, I mean, why wouldn't you? Imagine yeah. if I could borrow in, in Andy dollars. Yeah. It's like, I'll borrow a million dollars or a million Andy dollars. And yeah. then it's like, all right, here's your check for, you know, as many as I want to make up. <laughs> and it's, it's, effective, it's effectively a tax when, it, when the yeah. government's uh, creating money like that because it's a tax on everyone who has dollars out there. Yes. Because all their dollars are, everyone else with dollars, um, their dollars are now worth less because yeah. the government's created a whole lot more dollars. They haven't created any more goods and services in the economy. Mm. Um, so... The dollars, you have to use more dollars to get the things that you need. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so they say they say inflation is a tax on savers. Yeah. Uh, you've, you've held money. Say I've got, uh, uh, it's 1910 and I've got $100 under my mattress mm. and I pulled out 100 years later, I've lived a very long time, and it, it's got no purchasing power compared to 1910. Yeah. You know, it bought several ounces of gold in 1910. Now it buys point something something of an ounce of gold. And that, that's the argument why people mm. say hold gold. Yeah. Because the government can't print gold. Yeah. So in inflation, the increase of money supply, in theory, diminishes the purchasing power of money, mm. which means anyone who's held money has lost purchasing power, has lost wealth, and, and, and the, the common language in, in finance circles is it's a tax on savers. Yeah. It's, it's got the effect of, it's not an actual tax, it just has the effect yeah. of, of making people have less money. And because it's done by the government, people call it a tax because yeah. that's the government's business is often in taxing. Mm. It is a it is, it is a uh, indirect wealth redistribution though, I, I would say. So tax yeah. is wealth redistribution. Yes. And, and this has the effect of indirect wealth redistribution because- Savers effectively lose purchasing power, and in inflationary environments, people who hold real assets mm. have their asset prices go up yeah. typically, and that increases now, relative purchasing power. Yeah, just, just on that, uh, going back to the growth high and low and inflation high and low, um, different investment assets will perform differently in, mm. in depending where you are within those that mix. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you think about it in terms of, say, you've got um, 
you know, strong economic growth but low inflation. Mm-hmm. Generally speaking, um, industrials like normal stock market investments do quite well. Uh, if you've got a situation where you've got uh, low inflation and low growth, generally fixed income like bonds mm. will do quite well. If you have um, low growth but high inflation, things like precious metals, mm-hmm. uh, gold yep. will do quite well. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you've got what's left high inflation, high growth, and it's things like um, commodities, things that are um, of short supply but people need to build things. Yeah. Um, that's, that's sort of a generalisation of investments that, uh, you know, perform differently in different circumstances. Yeah, okay. You could probably add software to high growth, high inflation. Yes. Sorry, high, 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 the two high ones. What were the two high ones you said again? High? High growth and high inflation. Yeah, high monetary supply. Yeah, yeah high, okay, high inflation, which is more money increasing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, yeah, high growth with increased money supply and, and price of goods going up. So mm-hmm. software, because they can just reproduce without any cost. Yeah. And, so you, and there's a demand because there's growth. So you mentioned uh, US dollars and gold there just before. Just uh, I was thinking you mentioned last week that um, gold and US dollars uh, are, are that good sort of buffer to have in your portfolio. So how would I incorporate US dollars into my portfolio? Like how in terms of do I send some money to America or I buy like a – US oh, dollar fund or something like yeah I mean there's there's I think there's a USD listed on the stock market which basically holds US dollars for you yeah well, again though the the portfolio one is constructing would have to tie in with their goals and objectives yeah and who is it that says cash is trash who, who uses that line um, I do know that is it Ray Dalio yes okay so the idea cash is trash as a long term hold mm. cash Performs very poorly. Yeah, as as a long term hold, stocks and real estate perform a lot better. So and, what's and a, what's a horizon <clears throat> that makes cash a long term hold? Like, is it? You I know, don't think there is six months or a year. Three well, that's years. not long term though, is it? Well, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I, 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 cash cash is liquidity, right? Yeah. So when there's a liquidity crisis, cash is king. Mm-hmm. When it's time to pay the piper, yep. cash is king. Yep. So when when money is in short supply, when people don't want to take risks, when people have overextended themselves and have to pay their debts and we realise there's actually not enough money to pay these debts, mm. cash is king. It's like yeah. a game of musical chairs. Yeah. And cash is, cash is a seat on your bum. And there are some people, get, the music stops and there are some people without chairs. Mm. And, and in that case, cash is king. Uh, the, the long-term thing would be not to hold cash per se, but to hold things like Bonds and, and government bonds would be the safest bond in theory. If it's a, a government that can print its own money supply, you'll get paid as long. You might have it inflated to nothing, but in theory, you get the money back. And, and as James was saying, you have you have institutions like pension funds and insurance agencies that have financial commitments they have to meet, and they don't want to just sit on cash under their mattress. They'll get something that's very close to cash, a government bond. Highly liquid if it's a, a US government, for example, and collect a very small amount of interest if they can, or maybe they get big interest depending on the interest rates available. But it, it, it's very cash like, and they can hold that for long duration because they know exactly what the commitments are. Well, not exactly, but they have a rough idea of what their commitments are, 
and they say, if we get this, if we hold these bonds, we know we can meet our obligations. Mm-hmm. It's a locked-in interest rate, so we, we've, we've sorted out an, an aspect of our obligations with that. And that would be the, the time frame. But, but cash itself... I, I, it's it's a short time frame thing. I don't. I, I can't. I can't conceive of it as being a long time frame thing. It's it's you hold it when you think stuff's. You, you hold it when you think it's going to be able to buy more later. Mm-hmm. When you, if you think its purchasing power is going to be more in twelve months than it is now, that's when you hold cash. Mm-hmm. Uh, if 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 someone had a crystal ball and said the stock markets are going to crap themselves at the beginning of twenty twenty two, you hold cash. Yep. Because everything goes down, you 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 get more more value for your yeah. money, more bang for your buck six months time. I, I guess, um, in very general terms, say if you're if you're investing for say less than three years, you'd go, well, why am I investing in anything other than cash? Given that um, you know uh, investment returns may vary, I'm not. I'm not that's not a long time for, a, say, a stock market investment yeah. or a property investment. Yeah. There, you know, there might be transaction costs with property, and um, so. It makes sense to go. Well, I may as well um, keep cash because yeah. um, I, you know, I other, the outcomes are, are quite variable mm-hmm. over the short period of time. So I'd prefer to have a have a known outcome. Mm-hmm. Um, once you get to sort of maybe slightly longer than three years, maybe three to five years, things like fixed interest, you can have you know, um, generally um, bonds will pay pay a higher rate of return than mm-hmm. than cash. Yep. Um, so you'll. Um, you'll be able to get a higher interest rate and you've got a bit more time to wear out the volatility. Yeah. And then maybe when you get to towards sort of seven years, um, then, uh, you know, stock market investments, property market investments, uh, you know, seven years gives you a long time to ride a full economic cycle. So even if you've got in at the top, you've got a good chance of, you know, in seven years' time you'll have got to the next top anyway. So, yeah, okay. Um, that's those time frames vary depending on you know people's opinions and obviously you can mix up assets like you can have a uh, you know a portfolio weighted towards fixed interest and mm-hmm. and, and and cash but have some uh, share market exposure and that might give you quite low volatility still um, but um, yeah just as a general um, View, you know, there, there's different assets tend to have sort of different appropriate time frames. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, uh, I, I agree with what James said. I like the way he said it. Uh, just a, a small thing. I'm not trying to nitpick to mm. start a conversation or anything, but <laughs> you, you said invest in cash, and that, that's fine. But to me, the way my brain works is that cash is what you do when you don't know how to invest. And it's not to say you like you're an idiot. It's just you you don't know what to do with your money. So you have it in cash. So cash is just the default, I think. And then anything beyond that would be investing. But that's just my, the way I can see so, it. So I'm typical not products for, for cash, is that a, like your term deposits, b- bonds? Ba- oh, bank account. Bonds Bonds aren't cash. That's what you swap yeah. cash for. Yeah, so. okay. yeah okay. Well, well, typical cash is money under a mattress. Like a, t- a, yeah. a term deposit is a loan to the bank. You're lending the bank money. Yep. Uh, money in your bank account, your savings account, you're still lending the bank money. Mm-hmm. It's we, we, we conceive of it as cash, mm-hmm. but it's more us hoping the bank gives us cash when we ask for it. Because yeah. I saw there was a, this week there was a recent spike in uh, term deposit offerings. Like mm-hmm. uh, I I got a uh, got an email from my bank and I and I saw Mum's bank as well. You know, it's gone from like these point uh, five or point oh five or whatever to like two point five. 
Yeah. <laughs> like, what's quick as, and they all did it at the same time. Like, whoa. Interest is a thing again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's good, yeah. good for people who have been sitting on cash and will continue to sit on cash because mm. just because there are better performing investments and cash out there doesn't mean people are going to take them. Mm. And typically, old people will want to sit on a whole bunch of cash, and it makes sense. Yeah. Especially yeah. if you've been working all your life and, and you're quite old. You don't want all the stress of market volatility. You just want to enjoy your later years in, in, in a stable way, not caring about anything. Yeah. So cash, cash is that s- stability and peace of mind. Yeah. Unless there's hyperinflation. Yeah. And, and I mean, there, there's a lot of um, security around cash as well. Say Andy was talking about uh, money in the bank mm. um, and there are government guarantees around um, bank deposits yeah, okay. as well. So in effect, it does give you a high level of security even if the, the bank... So, that, so, like you're saying, if your bank packs it in, yes. government will sort you out sort of thing. In Australia, and yeah, I think it's $250,000 yes. at the moment, yeah. but I could be wrong, and it's not every single bank. It's mm. it's probably a bunch of them, but not every bank, no, no, I think. No, I think it's, a, I think it's as long as it is actually a bank. Right. Um, and it's one up to per institution, so 250000 per institution. Oh, I thought there were some banks that it doesn't apply to, but maybe I'm confusing that with building societies or something. There, there may be uh, lenders out there that um, are not banks. That, deposit takers. Yeah, deposit uh, takers that are that are not under the, the government guarantee. Yeah, I think there definitely there are ones that are not under the guarantee, whether it's banks or not, I guess, yeah. Anyway, yeah, As check, always, check, do check, your research. Yeah, check, check, check <laughs> Don't listen to deposit, us. <laughs> check with your deposit-taking institution. <laughs> yeah, because I, I saw, uh, was this one here, Vault? Australia's first only online bank shuts down. So I don't know if they had the guarantees or not. And I'm not suggesting they shut down because they ran out of money. But yeah, I don't know if Vault had the government guarantees. If it's a bank, then maybe it has to have it. The the other thing is if you're a a Russian with a deposit in Cyprus and it's a GFC, your deposits aren't so safe as it turns out. (laughs) (laughs) And probably now a Russian in Cyprus now might have the same problem. So Yeah. Um, I've also been thinking about... um, uh, the discussions of, of rebalancing. Oh, so uh, should we go back to stagflation or, or we move, we, like we just define terms and then stop talking about it? Oh, uh, yeah, I guess we can. Sorry, I was, uh, see, I'm, I'm like this puppy running off uh, in the distance there. So, because all we did was kind of established a bit of a framework without having a conversation specifically <laughs> about stagflation. <laughs> okay, yes, yes. Which is fine. I can't yeah. even remember what Andre wanted to talk about with stagflation. Oh, I, just, well, I wanted to know what it was. Oh. Like, and, um, and so, like, is it happening now? Th- that's that's a, a good question. It does kind of look that, I guess, the components um, are in place and it depends on what happens next. So we've got rising inflation. Mm. Uh, we've got... A rising... In, sorry? Like, pricey go-uppy or... <laughs> pricey go-uppy, yeah. So we've got prices going up of things. Yeah. yeah. And we've also got central banks trying to slow down economic growth by raising interest rates to yep. to put a control on that the pricey go up okay so the, we're, we're prices are going up for things in Europe in Japan yes America yes Australia yep and at the same time that that is that because the government's created more money oh this is such a big topic but yeah, yes they've created a, a lot of money during the the um or the central banks have purchased a whole lot of government bonds with newly created money they've got massive balance sheets of of uh, bonds that they've 
purchased with newly created money over the pandemic. And is that money under the mattress of the central banks or is that getting out into the economy? Well, they've already, governments have already spent a lot of money in the, um, in the, uh, the, the pandemic. Stimmy uh, checks. Yeah, stimmy checks, yep. Yeah, okay. A lot of, uh, who knows how much, you know, they've spent on in terms of vaccines and drugs and all that kind of stuff. But it's, it, it's not necessarily the case that every bond the central banks bought has now put money into the economy or it is every bond the central banks bought equals money in the economy? Oh, not necessarily every every single one, but you would say that um, the government has done a lot of, of spending. It's run a massive deficit. It's yep. run, run larger deficits. Larger deficits um, than I've, I'm aware of maybe outside war times. Yeah. Um, and that's that's actual spending going into the economy. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I, I would say generally speaking that, that the money has been spent. Yeah. And, and the thing there as well is if the government was 100% of the economy, then that's like super inflationary theoretically. But depending on what percentage the government spending is of the economy – will dictate how inflationary it is. Mm-hmm. So if the government was like 0.01% of the economy, yep. but it spent 100 times more than it ever does, it might, or 50 times more than it ever does, it might not actually have that much of an impact in the economy. So the bigger the government is, the bigger the percentage of government spending in the economy is, the more of an effect in theory it should have on inflation. But if the government builds a road and then the company that built the road and got paid by the government puts it under their mattress then that stops that velocity as well. So it's, it's not super straightforward. Just because the government spends the money, it doesn't mean it doesn't just end up in hands of somebody who puts it under their mattress mm-hmm. and effectively takes it out of circulation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, but, but it is, and it is large amounts of money. So the, I think the Australian government spends something like that or um, the central bank purchased about $300 billion worth of government, I think state and, uh, and federal government bonds. Uh, which is something like twelve thousand dollars per person. So it's, we're talking about substantial amounts of of money, and I would have thought that most of that would have been spent on whether it's you know vaccine and stimulus checks, and um, obviously they had lower tax receipts. Um, so that money that they would have taken off other people in the economy is not being taken off. It's mm. it's still floating around out there. Um, Obviously, the the velocity probably went down during the pandemic because people couldn't get out and and spend. But now the question is, is that going to – have we just created a situation where we've got a whole lot of money floating around and people are like, okay, I can get out now, Mm. Um, and the velocity goes up. And if that was the case, then you'd expect prices to move. Yeah. Because there's only so much, uh, you know, out there that – and obviously, you know, we can produce more as – the economy reopens, but it, it looks like there's a large amount of money and uh, a an increase, material increase in velocity. Yeah. And, and James and I differ a bit around this sort of stuff because mm. – uh, so I think you're, you're, you're in the stagflation camp. You think that that's going to be the end result. Is that right? Um, I, without a high d- degree of conviction, I, th- I would bet on that. Yeah, so like you, you might have thoughts that it could go this way or that way, but 
the by and large your like your your general vibe is the most compelling thing for you the most weight you have behind an idea is that we're going to have stagflation yes you're not you're not a hundred percent peter schiff i think is a hundred percent right stagflation Yes. Oh, he's, he's inflationary depression. <laughs> he's, okay, he's what's the difference between that and stagflation? Oh, a, a more extreme version of. Oh, it's just super it's stagflation yeah. on steroids. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So, so you're, you're by and large in the stagflation camp. Yes. You're not going to bet your entire fortune on it, but that's, that's where you think we're headed. Yes. Yeah, and, 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 and why do you think that? I guess for the, for the reasons that I've, I've kind of stated, I, I can't see a situation where... Um, I mean, this is where it gets a little bit complicated, but central banks are now increasing interest rates to slow things down. So yep. they're going to try and get control over inflation. Um, I think my, my view is that it's likely that they'll they'll overstep, um, cause a um, an economic downturn, and then the question becomes, okay, at that point, have they got control over inflation or not? Because I, I suspect that, that if they... If they created an economic downturn, um, that they would back off on interest rates. And if at that stage inflation isn't under control, uh, we might have a situation where they're loosening into an inflationary environment. What, what do you mean by loosening? Oh, so so say say uh, they raise interest rates, um, and they raise interest rates, and as as you probably know there's normally an, a, a lag between when they increase rates and when that sort of affects the economy and there's a there's a, some sort of effect of a downturn um so sorry what do you, what was your question again so oh that's right no you're answering it but yeah. the next thing i was going to ask is um what i know the answer to yeah. this but yeah. i'm asking yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not being devil's advocate i'm just no, trying no. to flesh out ideas yeah. yep for the audience, um, what, what happens in an economy when a bank raises interest rates? When interest rates go up, what's that actually okay. supposed to do in, in the economy? Um, so what's I, the consequence? Okay, so generally you'd expect um, economic activity to slow down. So, uh, so people will have mortgages, so they'll have to they'll be you know spending less at the cafe or whatever because they've got a, a higher uh, mortgage repayment. Uh, people will be given the choice of, you know, a higher interest rate on their savings. So they'll go, oh, well, you know, instead of instead of spending this money, I know that I can get a decent interest rate, so I'll, I've got a better incentive to take my money and put it in the bank rather than spend it um, uh, in the economy. So that, that sort of reduces the amount of money flowing around. So I guess it's- That reduces velocity, right? Yes. Me getting money and putting it in the banks reduces velocity. Yes. Yeah. So if I get a stimmy check and put it all in the bank, yes. kind of undermines the purpose of the stimmy check. Yeah. Yeah. Because the government if wants me- to, If it stays there and never comes out. Yes. Yeah. Because the government wants me to go and buy things from shops and yes. services from people. Yes. And if I just bank it, I've not, not done what I was supposed to do according to the government's big plan. Yep. Yep. Okay. Mm. So, well, that's yeah. So, so, so you think we're going to have stagflation because there's a whole bunch of money in the system, and and that was that was government stimulus and and money printing because of government stimulus uh, as a post COVID thing. But it's been going on for like yeah. since 2008 anyway, right? Like we've had yeah. crappy economic. We've been getting these government stimulus yeah. for like a decade. So, and there are a few things that are different. Just to throw them in, obviously we've got things with oil prices, uh, the war in Ukraine. Um, we've we've got uh, supply 
issues with, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, getting stuff from China or whatever it is. Well, let's let's just keep a, yeah. a, a simple summary okay. and then build on that. Okay. So since since the GFC, or probably even before that, yeah. the government's been increasing its spending mm-hmm. and and putting money in the system because of that, and it's been borrowing to increase its spending. So the government's making these promises to the population. Uh, supporting businesses, supporting individuals, whatever it is, and they they issue bonds for that. They borrow and get get money into the system because they've got money from the central banks who've bought the bonds, and and that increases the money supply. And at the same time, we've had a lack of economic growth, lack of growth of real things in the world to keep up with the money supply increases. And that led to the price increases of things because there's more money chasing relatively or proportionally fewer things. Mm-hmm. So the money supply is increasing at a rate greater than the rate of stuff that's produced. And that's inflationary. Is that is that fair? And then on... Oh, I mean, it, it is fair, but I'd, I'd say that we've had different economic conditions post-GFC, after 2008, um, in that central banks have created a lot of money, but nothing like what's happened with the um, pandemic. Uh, But there hasn't been an inflationary, or there hasn't been a pricey uppy effect. Stock markets have gone up a lot. Oh, okay. All right. So there's- Houses have gone up a lot. Okay, hang on. Hang on. We've got two things. Okay. So we've got consumer prices, which haven't been increasing, and we've got asset prices, which have been increasing. So it looks like a lot of the um, the stimulus post- the GFC has ended up in asset prices. So the rich getting richer, and yeah. the Occupy Wall Street, all that, like all this stimulus, seemed to to not go into helping you know the everyday person on the street. It didn't help Main Street. It helped Wall Street, and the people who were asset rich already got asset richer. Yes, and the gap between the rich and the poor got bigger and bigger. Yes, and Obama who said the change you can believe in, ended up funding the richest people and bailing out the crooked bankers and all that sort of stuff, which must have been heartbreaking for him, going on an election campaign about the everyday man and then as one of the first things he does with a pen is make super rich people not have accountability and, and bails them out to keep the system going. So I would have felt sick to my stomach if I was Obama that day based on my understanding of what his campaigning was, but apparently he had to do it. Um, otherwise the system would have collapsed. Could you imagine that though? As a thing, you have to help these rich people maintain their wealth despite their greed and stupidity. <laughs> otherwise, it's going to hurt poor people. Is it is like the, the rising tide, all boats sort of thing? Like, Well, if, imagine you had mass unemployment, right? Mm. Ima- just imagine... The Mass unemployment from, say, like a, the GFC. Cor- a corporation goes yeah. down. The GFC, yeah, yeah. G- GFC. The economy just absolutely craps itself, right? Mm. And and it's it's like the depression pictures, but worse. It's just yeah. like it's unemployment on a crazy scale. Yeah. Who does that hurt the most? Does it hurt a guy who has 20 houses, mm. farmland everywhere, gold bars everywhere, you know, money coming out of suitcases everywhere? Like, is that guy going to be worse affected than someone with no savings. Yeah. Uh, I was watching Charlie and the Chocolate Factory yesterday. <laughs> so imagine Charlie, right? Um, he's supporting his four grandparents who've been living in the same bed for 20 years or whatever. Um, 
he's only got three chocolate bars all the other kids got 200 or whatever the 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 economy crapping itself is going to hurt charlie more than the rich people mm. and and the the hurt is very bad if there's no like if employment's basically like you know been obliterated mm. it, it affects the poorest the most so even though it will affect the rich they're not going to go hungry they're, yeah. they're, they're not going to miss out on medicine they're not going to have people in their family dying because of this which, which is a potential consequence of, of massive economic collapse. Mm. Um, maybe they die in the long run because there's a revolution and their heads get chopped off, but yeah. leading up to that, it's the poor that suffer the most. So uh, apparently Obama had to bail out the banks and all this sort of stuff and, and, and maybe the, the, the lessons that should have been learned, the natural consequences that you expect in capitalism didn't occur, mm. and, and that means that the cans kick down the road and the moral hazard it continues. Yeah, whatever. Uh, but yeah, I just, Peter Schiff discussed that on on that Vox Pop. He did ask a ask a one percenter or something. Someone's like, oh, "You shouldn't be bailing the capitalism sucks. You shouldn't be bailing these people out." And he's like, "Well, that's not capitalism." And it's it's true. It's it's if if the government is stopping things that should fail from failing, that's not capitalism. Mm. It's not it's not it's not the competition where where the the best the the most fit wins and, and survives. That's actually a characteristic of of fascist. Well, it's like it's uh, a, economic system, isn't it? Like the Italian style, where it's like capitalism, but the government controls it. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's with a with a part of a sort of a tenant of fascism is mm. that there's a cooperation or a collusion between the state and yeah. and private enterprise. Mm. Well, the idea is that everything is subservient to the state in fascism, but it's incredibly hard to define fascism. I've read but several yeah, books trying yeah. to define it, and I still don't know how it's defined. So, yeah. but yeah, there's a vibe to it, and that yeah. the, the vibe is that. Everything is sub- subservient to the state, and and usually there's some ethnic thing with it as well, where you know we're we're the best people on the planet because of being you know Roman or, or whatever it is, and yeah, but it, the state is subservient. Sorry, the, the the corporations are subservient to the state. What 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 I think, um, well, they call it crony capitalism, don't they? With um with with what happened when in the JFC, where it looked like the state had to be subservient to big corporations. Mm. Because I think you'd normally think of capitalism as a an evolutionary type process. So yeah. you know, if you, if you think about evolution, there's a whole lot of little experiments going on out there, and you know, to come to the best outcome, it's, you don't sort of you know try and manipulate everything. You just basically let um, things that work work, and let mm. things that uh, don't work um, die off, and that way you come up with the most efficient outcome. Yeah. Um, becomes problematic where there's like a system risk, say with the banking institutions, yep. where it's kind of like uh, you know if the if the banking institution goes down, then it takes down the perfectly functional small business, yeah. you know, and then and that's kind of I think what Andy's getting at with the um, Obama going well, you know, in the end we have to bail these banks out in order to make sure that the little business still can can get money to, yeah, to okay. function. Mm. And I'm just saying, if I was Obama, I would have struggled so much with that. So um, mm. I, I have empathy for the guy. I remember at the time, just like you know, change you can believe in, just writing <laughs> checks for the rich or whatever. But um, and and I, I, on principle, I think that they all should have failed, and yeah. there should have been a collapse and a cleansing. The the problem is that in theory, the poor suffer the most. But with that said, maybe the government could have just had some sort of um so, nationalised lodging and and feeding thing and said we're gonna look uh, yes the poorer people it's gonna suck for two or three years but we're wiping the moral slate clean 
So in terms of like uh, they don't bail these people out and it and it collapses. What what does a collapse look like? Is that like a like Cormac McCarthy, the road apocalypse sort of thing? People eating each other and that, that's an interesting one because it's it depends on what economist you talk to. So yes. if you talk to someone like Peter Schiff, mm. he would argue that it's it's just um, a, a cleansing. So what happens is that all the businesses that were doing all the stupid stuff mm. will cease to exist, but all the assets that they have will still be there. It's yeah. not like that, you know, their their buildings or their, you know, their their plant and equipment disappears because mm. they go bankrupt. They're still there. Yeah. Um, so what it would mean is that there'd be an entrepreneur who'd come in and be able to snap up all these uh, you know, uh, you know, whatever it is, plant and equipment and mm. business um, at a at a very cheap price without without any debt, mm-hmm. get it up and running again. Uh, and then you've just got a, a the system's been cleansed because there's all these you know uh, ridiculous debts are gone. Yeah. Um, you've you've had all the people who are doing all the silly stuff disappear, uh, and then you've got these new entrepreneurs coming in uh, and filling in the gap. Um, if you're more of a uh, say a Keynesian economist, they would say that basically this would cause a you know a depression. Mm-hmm. The government needs to step in. Yeah. Uh, to prevent. Um, you know, this collapse of the economic system uh, and that might mean government programs might be in bailouts, might be, you know, a number of things, but it'll be basically government stepping in to um, to fill in the gap from where the where the corporations have, have failed. Yeah. The, the pump the pump is stalled and you've got to prime it and get it going again and that's mm-hmm. where the government steps in to prime it up and get the system running again. Mm. Um, yeah, I, 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 I would have liked... On, on principle to see a collapse. And I think it's probably long-term healthier too. It, it bothers me that you got these um, schmucks who went to Harvard and all that sort of stuff, silver spooners working at these corporations and they cause all these problems. They make all these mistakes and they don't suffer the consequences. But then you've got this you know thing from a certain moneyed class saying, well, you could be like us. You just have to work hard and have good ideas. And it's like... You guys were morons who lost all the money and everyone gave it back to you. Yeah. And then you judge these other people and, and, you know, celebrate your quotation marks success and merit when in fact you had no success and merit. You just basically got bailed out by every taxpayer in the country. Mm-hmm. And, and if there's inflation, that, that is a loss of purchasing power for all the savers who are usually old people. Mm-hmm. So, you, you know, these, these Wall Street types end up having minimal suffering still being on their high horses about the merits of, 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 of hard-working capitalism. It's all just a giant fraud. Mm. Kind of sickens me. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you see much uh, much um, merit in Ray Dalio's idea? So you were talking about the, 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 in, the, the wealth gap sort of increasing and things like that. And that's one of the markers of like a down, downfalling uh, superpower. Mm. Um, do you see it like from what you were describing, sort of the rich feathering their own nest, do you – it's not the rich feathering their own nest. It's the poor feathering the nest of the rich, well, yeah, and then yeah, getting yeah. lectured to by the rich about how to be like them, yeah, and, and how they're they're morally weaker and and intellectually weaker. Like you know, the the poor or these weak, pathetic people who need to look up to the rich because they've got all these virtues, and it's like mm. they, they didn't have virtues; they just stole off the poor. Mm. I mean, not stole off the poor, but got money from the poor via the government. And, yeah. yeah, I mean, because in America, it seems like. Uh, uh, They've got a, I guess, a population that's significant enough that if they, on mass, wanted to do something like that, they could. Well, democracy is on mass doing something about that. And when I say stole off the poor or got money off the poor, it, because the prices of things went up, mm. 
Right. So inflation being a tax on savers, it's, 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 they call it the silent tax. If prices goes up and people pay less, everyone pays for it. Mm. And this, this is ultimately, by the way, Ray Dalio's endgame for most of these economic problems. The government inflates all the monetary problems away, hoping people don't notice yes. that their purchasing power has gone down. So you're doing the same amount of work, same amount of hours per day, blah, 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 but you get less and less because of inflation that 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 mechanism of inflating away the debt because you print more money to pay away the debts, um, whilst people are doing the same amount of work and getting less, that's effectively all those people paying for it. Mm. That's the that's the end outcome. Yeah, you did the same amount of work, you got less stuff, and all the debt's gone. How'd that happen? It's, it's because of the inflation erased the debt. Mm. I owe hundred dollars. I write a check for hundred dollars that I just made up out of thin air. But now that money's in the system and it causes prices to go up. And my wages don't end up going up, unfortunately, but the price of everything goes up. Uh, it effectively means I work for free somehow. Mm. And, that's how, and that's what pay the debts. I haven't articulated that well, but that's, um, that's, that's the beautiful deleveraging Ray Dalio talks about, ultimately. Mm. Have you guys read this beautiful deleveraging? No. Okay. I've, I've seen the YouTube video. Oh, okay. It's good. There's a, there's a video. Yeah, yeah. Okay. He has a stunning voice for narrating, does Ray Dalio. Really? I'd like to shout out to Adrian Wong if he's listening. Wongy would have the most stunning voice for any narrating. Oh, um, Wongy like Ian's mate Wongy. Yeah. He's a teacher. I saw him on a teacher's board. Uh, I was visiting a client at work. Anyways. Sorry. Yeah, nice. This, guy, this guy's voice. My little brother was always like, if I ever need to go to sleep, I just want Wongy sitting there reading stories to me and I'd have the best dreams ever. I'd just like doze away so gently and quietly. He does have a very good voice for reading books, Wongy. But anyway, so you saw the beautiful deleveraging video or how an economy grows and why... Oh, no, no, sorry. How the economic machine works. Which one did you say? Oh, so that has... The beautiful deleveraging in it. The um, what was the sorry the how the economic machine works. works. Yeah, it's yeah. a thirty-minute video by yep. Ray Dalio. It's it's it's. The, I tell everyone to to check that out if they want a basic understanding of how the economic machine works. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's it's really good. Mm. Uh, you've seen it, Andre? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, okay, so it's got the beautiful deleveraging in that, does it? Yes. And what does it say? Um, I mean, he talks about the, you know, short-term debt, debt cycle, long-term debt cycle and, um, you know, how uh, the cycle can become over-leveraged and then how to, how, uh, I guess, managing a deleveraging with, you know, there's massive amounts of debt in the system and governments, I guess, creating more money over a period of time so that, um you know, assets can be deleveraged in a manner that doesn't cause sort of mass unemployment and um, at the same time you don't end up with a huge amount of inflation. Yeah, so it's not highly disruptive. It cleans yes. the slate without great disruption mm-hmm. and maybe everyone gets 1% less per year or whatever over a couple of years, but it's, it's better than being in bread queues and all that sort of stuff, in bread lines and mass unemployment. Um, just in terms of going back to rich getting richer and, you know, poor not. Um, I think monetary policy has, as in interest rates and central banks, you know, uh, purchasing, creating new money to purchase um, government debt, has been a contributor to do that, as in low interest rates have the effect of increasing asset prices. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and also, as you said, um, creating new money delete, dil- dilutes the value of that money. 
Um, and normally you have a situation where people who are wealthy have assets and debt against those assets. So mm. kind of they're in a situation where the assets become worth more mm. um, and they're paying less for their debt. Um, it's so, a double whammy win. Yeah, yeah. And so I guess in terms of, you know, uh, ways that governments can affect um, the economy, mm. uh, you have monetary policy, which is basically interest rates, but also, say, the central bank, um, uh, quantitative easing, purchasing, you know, creating money to purchase government bonds. You also have fiscal policy, which is the government spending. Um, it, it appears to me um, that the overuse of monetary policy um, with interest rates has benefited the wealthy, people mm -hmm. who've already got assets, um, whereas uh, we look like we're using a bit more fiscal policy now, which is the government, say, spending more than it, um, that it collects in taxes, mm -hmm. which is a stimulus that way, or they can have contractionary fiscal policy, which is the opposite. It can collect more in taxes than it spends. Um, but uh, by the government, by if they use more fiscal policy um, rather than monetary policy, I would suspect that that would have the opposite effect. So you'd get more stimulus into the economy um, if they're using, um, you'd end up with higher interest rates, higher inflation, that would bring down asset prices. Um, and it would also, you'd end up with things like wages going up um, uh, in, in line with inflation, um, which would basically it would put someone with a wage in a better position because they'd have lower asset prices to purchase. Yeah. Uh, but they would be getting wage increases in line with inflation, if that makes sense. So what happens on the other end of this pendulum? Like what we're seeing now, like, uh, yeah, you know, when the, the interest rate, like why don't, because like, it sounds like good what you're describing there, so why don't we do that all the time? Well, there's a counter argument to, to the benefit of fiscal. Um, so monetary stimulus is good for Wall Street, fiscal's... Well, James is painting a picture how it's good for Main Street. Mm. The, the thing is, though, that um, when you see fiscal, sorry, when you see um, monetary stimulus being good for Wall Street, that's asset prices going up. When you get fiscal, then it's um, real economy things going up. So, like fruit and goods, veg and all yeah, that sort of stuff, goods and, uh, goods and services. So, a consequence of fiscal stimulus is prices of everyday items going up. So if, 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 again, if you're not getting wage increases in excess of the price rises, you're actually behind. Mm -hmm. and, and, that, and that is a, a, apparently that's what's been happening in America with their fiscal stuff, that the fiscal stimulus was such that people had a, a short-term injection of, of money, but now because of the money entering the system and moving through the system with velocity, they have the end result of actually being poorer in terms of actual purchasing power, power because of it. Yes, so and, then, and then you get the um, the Wall Street propaganda saying, "See, this is why you have to do um, monetary." <laughs> oh, sorry, uh, was it non fiscal stimulus? What was the opposite of fiscal M monetary. monetary policy? Yeah, so then Wall Street's like, "This is why you do monetary policy to make us rich, <laughs> because when you do fiscal, you just hurt the poor." And, you know, they twirl their moustache and smoke their pipe while they put that out in the <laughs> newspapers and, and influence but, our thoughts. But, but that's true. So, so wages in the US are increasing um, 
in, in nominal terms, so just in sort of dollar terms, at a faster rate than they've increased um, for years. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's something like 5% per annum, but the inflation rate's 86 Yep. So they, they've actually um, gone backwards. So um, the real the real rate is negative three point negative three percent. Mm. So your prices your wage has gone up five percent nominally. Mm. Uh, the, 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 there's a number that says you got up five percent. We're naming mm. it five percent higher, but everything else around you has gone up by eight percent in real life. Mm. You're actually three percent worse off. So, so in real terms, you're worse off despite getting a five percent pay rise because everything's gone up by eight percent. So in terms of that, so as uh, as just like a retail or like as just a normal person, like uh, investing is like a must, isn't it? Like to, you know, to, to so you're not just like losing money year on year. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's definitely true. And you've got to have a think about, um, you know, what you're going to do because mm. um, you've obviously, like say for instance at the moment you've got a situation where, um, inflation's increasing, so obviously mm. that has anything, any investment denominated in dollars. So mm. whether it's cash or whether it's you know a a bond, which is a promise to pay dollars in the future, um, they're obviously going to be effect- affected by inflation. Mm. Um, is the inflation here to stay? It's a hard hard question to answer. Um, you know, is it uh, you know are um, other investments. Uh, are there investments out there that are, like, say, for instance, companies that are in a position to increase their profits as a result of more money floating around in the system? Um, you know, have they got pricing power? Um, you know, real assets, say, for instance, like gold or property, you know, are they um, moving sort of getting away from things like interest rates? But, you know, you'd expect that um, the price of of gold is a is a sort of a, a constant, or the price of property would be a constant, and it, and if you just have more money in the system, people would just pay more for it mm. because there's there's a set amount or a fairly fixed amount of gold or, or property or whatever in the system, so they can act as inflationary hedges. Mm. Um, I, I've become sentimental in the last <laughs> I don't know year or two. I don't know. But um, my, my, my grandparents came from Europe. They were in Germany mm. when World War II was on. They actually um, fled the communists. So they were North East European, mm. like uh, Baltic. And uh, they, they, they fled the communists to Germany and ended up in Germany and then migrated to Australia. I think they were refugees. Um, and I remember being... Uh, growing up in, in my house and the intelligence and education being such an important thing. So even, you know, the the insult wouldn't be, oh, you're a douchebag. It'd be like, you're an idiot. That that would be the insult. And I, I, did, I, I reflected on this, how most of the, the the negative statements put on people were around their level of education and, and, and intelligence. And I saw that coming from the grandparents, ultimately. Um, I could be wrong in my theory, but that's and and my my family's obsession with education. So I wanted to do a trade and and was talked out of it in, in into doing university. And it was just the expectation that you go to university. But I like the idea of doing a trade. I still have fantasies of being a furniture maker. Um, <laughs> I don't know if I have the patience, but that, that's my fantasy retirement hobby: making furniture. Another plug for unique furniture in Canberra. Beautiful <laughs> furniture. Um, maybe I can make something like that one day. But anyway, so um. 
then there's there's uh, tribu- tribulation in the world. Is that when things aren't good? Tribulation is that the right word? I don't know. Tribulation, things aren't great. There's um anyway. There's the world. The world's complicated, and um, the countries are angry with each other. Zaihan talks about this as the the removal of U.S. global hegemony. And and them not being the global peacekeepers, but there's there's global instability now, and we Australia feels threatened by countries, other countries feel threatened by other countries, and and I thought, well, what if um what if what if my country got invaded? Yeah, I've I've, I've been here um learning about how to invest in markets and all this sort of stuff. There's a there's um Oz Minerals, I've been watching them for ages. They're a copper mine in Australia. It's like, oh, you know, imagine, imagine you, you you invest in Oz Minerals and you make a killing in the price going up. That is, and and they're they're, they're doing really well with money, and then all of a sudden Australia is an occupied country and your investment in Oz Minerals is worthless. It's like, how much time have you spent researching this investment crap? And it's only really useful for investing. If if someone gets sick, they don't come to me, and if if someone needs something built, they don't come to me. Like, mm. like my skill set is 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 useful in a, a world of finance, right? Mm. Um, Jim Rogers, have you heard of Jim Rogers? Yeah, Jim Rogers. So he says in the future, um, the 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 people who drive tractors will have the the wealth and prestige of the people these days who drive Lamborghinis or something. Is that is that because they stole all the Russian tanks? <laughs> <laughs> like, so yeah, like farmers, like Jim Rogers is massive into um commodities. He's got a thing called the Rogers International Commodity Index. He wears a bow tie constantly. He makes him look like a ten year old to me. But um he's he's an interesting guy and I, I listen to, I, I don't when I was a gold bug I listened to Jim Rogers a lot. Mm-hmm. I still listen to him, but um, yeah, I, I, I dilute what he says a lot. But um, he was talking about the, the people who drive tractors being the important people in the economy in the future, whatever. The point is, you know, Wall Street skills are kind of useless. They don't do anything except lay to do weird stuff with money, right? So uh, Australia gets invaded and then I have to, you know, maybe I'm a refugee somewhere else. And they're like, what can you do? And I'm like, oh, well, I know a little bit about Australian tax law. And <laughs> they're like, oh, great. Can you, can, can you, can great, you, there's a shovel. <laughs> can, can you build this, can you build this, um, you know, can you frame a wall for me? Oh, nah, that's, mm. that's what carpenters do or whatever. So um, when, when you were saying, Andre, I guess you just got to invest. Mm. Um, there is absolutely something where you, the Red Queen hypothesis. You guys familiar with that? Alice in Wonderland. Yeah. You got to you got to run just to stay in the same spot. Mm-hmm. So in a competitive environment, uh, if everyone's running forwards, you have to be running forwards or relatively yep. you're going backwards. So in an environment where prices are going up and you you need to be doing something to to make your purchasing power. You need you need your nominal wealth to increase just to have parity in real terms so if if inflation if prices are going up then you need to keep up with your purchasing power otherwise you're going backwards effectively and i I think that's kind of what you're alluding to by saying Mm. you have to invest otherwise because you fall behind otherwise right yeah so with all my sentimentalism and all that sort of stuff uh investing in education and being useful like you can take that with you anywhere. Yeah. yeah, it's it's like Bitcoin in that sense. You can take it <laughs> yeah. on a plane with you. You can't take um, a suitcase full of gold or US dollars or something, but you can take your brain with you. So it's, and I'm not saying go and you know study X Y Z or whatever, but there is a case that 
having useful skills mm. is 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 a good investment investing in developing those skills because if if you think of yourself as a business if you can charge more for your services for the same amount of time mm. which is a salaried worker who's earning a higher salary you're you're getting a better return on time mm. and and that's the resource that's the most finite resource we have time because we die mm. at some point we run out of time so yeah i think doing doing some sort of investment money kind of stuff to to not go behind you can't just sit on cash absolutely mm-hmm. um but at the same time there's there's something to be said for increasing your um the value you can extract from yourself if you choose to do that uh, mm. i think i think that's a good point because uh, yeah. obviously we get stuck in the you know uh, financial assets space yeah. um but there are you know you can think about things as a, a you know a broader sense of you know how am i um you know able to uh, you know, obviously, in this case, delivering value to other people, mm. um, and that, I mean, in some some respects, that's what you're doing when you're investing. You're going, okay, well, um, you know, a company uh, needs money to, um, you know, to produce goods, even though you might be buying shares on the secondary market and all this kind of. But essentially, the shares are there because mm. they needed to raise capital yep. to produce something. Yep. Or you know, if it's a bond, you're lending some someone money to. Do something that yep. they wouldn't be able to do without that. Yep. Um, and in this case, it's a case of of you know you're going to be able to um, produce things for someone else that they'll find useful yep. and that they see that as valuable and they're yeah. they're going to give you a return for that. Yeah. Uh, so in in a sense, it's it is actually an extra um, thing to think about. Um, you know whether whether beyond you know financial markets are there other ways of of um, of providing. Um, value to other people. Um, the only the only thing I would say is that generally with your personal skills, it's not a, a passive mm. um, return. So say if you've you know if you buy a um, a stock and you get a dividend, mm. you don't really have to do anything. You can just wait till the check arrives. Yeah, yeah. Whereas me, I'm doing research and stuff. Um, but but to finish off Sorry. to finish off my thing, um, so I understand where my grandparents were coming from now with being obsessed with education because okay. that was the only thing they could take with them when they left, you know, various countries because of war. So mm. there you go. You get to appreciate the the wisdom of the elders, yeah. as opposed to thinking I don't want to go to university and study this. <laughs> it was funny. I was, I was just sort of, uh, I guess that was the, my family path was very similar. Um, in particular. Uh, so Polish family, they, they came from Germany after after the war, um, and yeah, education, particularly for my dad and his brother, they was like, you got to go to uni. And the one thing Grandpa was used to say was, um, sorry, um, that he'd, he'd show his like workers' hands and be like, you guys can't have hands like this. Go to uni, yep, that sort yep. of thing. And uh, and I guess that sentiment was echoed in my family as well. But I was like the black sheep with it all. My brother and sister did very well. And I took a, a more circuitous path. I think eventually I got there or maybe getting there. But, um, yeah. No, it's about the journey though, isn't it? Yeah. Because, yeah. I mean, you have to it, – it's a difficult thing to find because you've got to – you know, you spend a lot of your, your time, say, at work. Yeah. So you need to find the thing that you like doing or you – you know, is not necessarily – you know, painful to do, mm. um, and that's a very important thing. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So for the audience, you can read a poem called Ithaca by Kavafi. He's an Alexandrian Egyptian poet, and, and he writes a good poem about the 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 journey, not the destination. Uh, and just on um, 
Just on uh, taking stuff with you, have you, Jim Rickards, have you listened to much of him? Is he the Sprite guy? No, that's... He's got long hair, does he? Or he used to have long hair and he's kind of bald on top or something, is that? Yeah. yeah he's, he's, a, he's a big, he's a resources guy. Uh, like hard assets, commodities. Yeah, yeah. He, he, so, so Jim Rickards, all I was going to say about taking stuff with you is that he's, he... Uh, has said that um, royal families or, or, or uh, you know, landed gentry in, in Europe um, used to have like a, a strategy of, of having uh, money in gold, fine art and their their land that they own and every now and then there'd be some sort of, you know, redistribution of, um, you know, borders and they'd kind of get kicked out and they'd roll up, roll up their fine art and their, take their gold with them. And come and basically wait until the problem had passed, and then they'd come back. Yeah, and there you go. Yeah, they've got you know portable wealth. Yeah. Mm. Um. And look, Bitcoin. I'm not saying buy Bitcoin. But that is <laughs> that is an argument for Bitcoin. Man, I saw an article and it made me think of you. Um. What's this guy? Yep. Uh, the terror guy to Do Kuan Yu or something. He's like uh, he was a billionaire at the beginning of the year. Now he's got like nothing. Yeah, um, you know, that's like me with my coffee stocks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because I was thinking that you were talking about psychology of investing. And he's like, I don't care. I live a fiscal lifestyle. But like, that's, well, a, bit, that's a bit of a dog-ass thing to say because it's like, what about all the people that just got plundered? Yeah, you know? yeah. It's like that uh, that joke, you know, how do you be, become a crypto millionaire? How do you become a crypto millionaire? millionaire sorry, yeah. A oh, billionaire. Mil- crypto millionaire. M for McDonald's. Yeah, M yep. for McDonald's. It's... You start out with a billion dollars, yeah, and then you invest it in crypto. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So I thought that meme you sent me was quite good. Well, I just want to go back to this thing. Isn't this guy like some guy who's been accused of like a massive crook? Yeah. I just like I, <laughs> I, I just want to get this right for my defamation lawsuit. I drank. <laughs> what exactly are you saying? Um, uh, oh come on. But um, yeah, I, I I I care my stock price is going down, but mm. I I have and I, and we we in the um, podcast have talked about prices going up. It's it's a problem as someone who purports to be a value investor like myself that we seem to talk mm. of stocks um, because we shouldn't care about the price of stocks. We should believe that they'll sort themselves out over time as long as the earnings are okay. Mm. So um, yeah, it's speaking um, of earnings, I need to do a tutorial session with uh, uh, valuing businesses, net present value, and, and stuff like that. I've been trying to to uh, like uh, trying to figure it out, and if my calculations are correct, everything's on super sale. So, um, mm. but I don't think it's correct. So yeah, okay. Well, yeah, um, we'll talk about that. We'll talk about that in a second. Sometime. Yeah, we can we can have a brief talk about that in the, in the podcast but um yeah for for, for my um copper company i hold i i think the earnings will be fine um as long as there's no operational disasters mm. I, I think they have robust earnings and and over time the share price will reflect that mm. uh copper's dropped down to like three dollars fifty now so we talked about Do- dr copper yeah, yeah. last week um oh, i always thought that dr copper was talking about the health of the economy but I, I, I heard a thing recently saying they call it Dr. Copper because it's got a PhD in economics. And, and huh, I was just about to ask yeah. you why you calling him Dr. Copper. Yeah, so <laughs> I thought it was about economic health, like medicine doctor, but apparently no, it's because he's got a PhD in economics. So, so Copper um, predicts economic outcomes and, and if Copper's dropping, then expect recession kind of thing. 
Mm. Coppers like the, what do they call that? The bellwether? I don't know. The, the, the thing that gives you an advance warning signal. What's that? Word it's for canary that. in the coal mine type scenario. Yeah, anyway, yeah. so yeah, if, 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 if copper is um, right, then, then things are going bad. And with all of that said, um, I'm, I'm not a, a, a stagflationist. I think that we'll have, uh, they're already talking about us being in recession, or uh, sorry, America being in recession. Why do I say us? Because I read too much Twitter. Um, America. Is, is is experiencing recession. Um, recession being decline quarter on quarter for what, three, two quarters in a row? Yes. It's not like, they say recession like, oh, the sky's falling. It just means you could have like a 0.1% drop two quarters in a row. It's like nothing. But that is a recession technically. Um, so the idea is that the central banks raise interest rates or whatever um, and then that slows down economic activity and, and that leads to potentially unemployment or probably unemployment because people aren't going out to restaurants as much, which means the restaurants have to cut back staff. The staff that would have gone to Starbucks aren't going there as much because they don't have the job, so that leads to cutbacks or whatever, and then eventually the central banks fix that by lowering interest rates or whatever. Um, but, yeah, the the deflation is side for me. I think that the productive capacity of the global economy will will increase so i don't think we're going to get i think i think the amount of goods in the system will rise higher than the amount of money in the system there'll be goods growth will exceed money in the system growth so so back to that mv equals pq the money times velocity equals price times quantity you're saying the quantity will increase faster than the yeah, money supply, and, and that and that and that will be price deflationary, and that's that's what I think will happen. And there's a lot of there's a lot of um, technology type arguments as well around, um, you know, a re- reduction in prices. Um, so, say for instance, if you look at things like um, electric vehicles. Sorry, I'm just oh, <laughs> crap in my leg. Um, uh, so you know, say say electric vehicles are um, much more price efficient. Than than uh, petrol petrol vehicles. Um, you know you can you know eventually if you get to a point where you can have uh, renewable energy in the economy, um, you know it's already much cheaper to uh, run an electric vehicle on uh, than to, to to run a petrol vehicle. Mm. Um, so you, you could have a situation in the future where we've got a an electric basically run on electric grids and. Um, the cost of uh, transport is greatly reduced. Transport flows through to basically everything um, because, you, you know, everything that you buy in a store has come from somewhere. Mm. Sometimes it's come from across the world somewhere. Mm. Um, so electric uh, electricity is a much more efficient way of, of running things than fossil fuels uh, in terms of the amount of energy that you use. Um, but there's a whole lot of, say, um, you know, artificial intelligence, um, you know, 3D printing, a whole lot of things that could make production a lot easier um, and a lot more uh, price efficient. But do you have anything else that you want to add to that? Uh, oh, yeah, sure. Uh, there's a, there's an Arch, Arch Druid report. There's this guy who was in the Arch Druid Society of America and he used to write these reports. The, the, the website's down now. I think he, he monetized it somehow and you have to buy his book or something. I can't remember his name. 
um, oh, anyway, he, he used to write about peak energy. Mm-hmm. He used to do these really long essays that I really liked reading, basically arguing that we're not able, when we're, it's, it's not possible for the world to move to a new, renewables. Mm-hmm. We had the chance a while ago and we missed it. Mm-hmm. And now the amount of energy that's required to transition to renewable energy isn't there. There's mm-hmm. not enough physical energy in the form of, I guess, fossil fuels to, to transition us into renewables. So we're all just going to have to go back to being hunter and gatherers. Whatever. Oh, so eventually we're just going to run out of like energy in general. Yeah. Yeah. And, huh. and, and, and just wind back to a pre-industrial society. That's what he reckons is going to happen. So it's, it's interesting because right. I was, um, had John Lennon's imagine, well, in the, in my mind, mm. I was singing that to myself while James was talking and, and, you know, imagine, imagine a world where. So is everyone going to backwards plunder the forest and stuff? Cause we've got to go back to doing charcoal and. Yeah, probably. Yeah. But, um, uh, imagine, imagine a world where energy is free, right? Because you, you've got these efficiencies, you, you produce, imagine if you could produce renewable energy on the cheap. And in India, in India, renewable energy providers have been winning auctions against fossil fuel energy providers. Like three years ago, they were doing it when fossil, f- fossil fuel, fuel prices were cheaper. You had renewable energy bidders without government subsidies winning auctions for, for energy. So that would suggest that a point was reached three years ago where renewables were actually cheaper than non-renewables, which means all the government activity doesn't need to be done. The economy will just sort it out itself. That's the conclusion one could draw from that. But let's say you get into a position where renewables win. Then all of a sudden you're using renewable energy to do the mining and then you could get more robot uh, and automation in the mining. So eventually the commodity prices, because the, the, the expense in mining is you get something like copper let's just say right or, or gold okay gold you get a ton of rock and it's got four grams of gold in it and you got to crush that rock up that's a lot of energy mm. to d- extract the rock dig it from an underground tunnel build the build the infrastructure to make sure the tunnel doesn't collapse and air can go in there and then you got to move move this ton of rock and whatever it is from underground potentially if it's a tunnel type mine and then crush it and then do other stuff to separate the gold you're doing all that for four grams mm. in a ton so much energy is involved in that but if so it, that's and that's a typical like extraction ratio well for if a four grams a ton for a gold mine is pretty good huh. it depends what kind of mine yeah uh, it depends what the operation is but mm. but a lot of energy goes into getting that four grams of gold but if energy was free mm then you could start mining where there's half a gram of gold mm. a ton. The, the energy is a big input cost. And yep. if, if plant and equipment is able to be produced with energy that's really cheap, to, close to free, mm. then the plant and equipment begets, becomes a lot cheaper too. So all of a sudden, everything becomes cheaper in this energy abundant society. And in theory, as you get improvements, energy gets cheaper and cheaper, eventually it becomes free. Mm. So if, if renewable energy works... There is an argument that eventually it just becomes free, effectively free, because energy is an input cost in everything. Yep. And if that input cost drops and drops and drops, then everything gets cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. Yeah. And it means you can produce energy cheaper as mm-hmm. well because energy, solar grids, and all that sort of stuff. So eventually, it just has this um, reflexive—that's a Soros term—a reflexive cycle that that makes it, yeah, essentially close to free. But according to the Archdruid report guy, that's not going to happen. <laughs> but, but it is an interesting um, uh, 
area uh, in that people there's quite a differing view of opinions on um, how you know whether you know how how difficult or how easy it is to move to renewable energy yep. um, because you'll have people who will argue that you know there's although it might be incremental you know it's it's energy is going to get cheaper yeah it's going to get much much cheaper yeah and there's the reverse which is which is no it's too you know there's too many um you know inputs that go into mm. like say for instance um, you know with a solar panel you've got to get all got to mine all this all the components yeah and, and how much energy do you get from that solar panel and the finite life yeah. and all that sort yep. of yeah yeah and, and and exactly yeah um and and then batteries and all these kind of things. Um, and so there's people on the other flip side of that is saying that, you know, the energy input from, say, fossil fuels that you need to, you know, run all the equipment to get that stuff out yeah. is actually too large. And it is an in interesting thing. I mean, I, I fall slightly more on the, okay, it is something that we can progress to. Yes. Um, and there are, I mean, electric cars are probably a good example where, you, where you're um, – Sort of upfront energy input cost is um, is higher, yep. but then the vehicle's around for much longer, yep. um, and it's not using any more fossil fuels when it's yeah. when it's in play. Yeah, me and, me and my mate, we were uh, checking out. Um, we've been reading about Toyota recently, just just research, mm. and he came across some information that was um, the the reason that Toyota hasn't gone full ham into electrics is because they just don't believe. Mm. That, that oil and, and all that sort of stuff's ever going to go away. Mm. So they're more bullish on hybrids. Yep, yep. Like, even though it seems like it's dated technology mm. now, they they still think that's where the fu future is. Mm. is and, and there is an argument that, that there is actually, okay, so putting the, the climate change um, stuff aside, um, there, there is an argument that we do actually have way more fossil fuels than we need. It's just a matter of having the technology to extract them. Yeah. Um, Apparently, Canada actually has the world's largest oil reserves. It's just yeah. that it's in oil sands and, and very energy intensive yeah, okay. um, and expensive to extract. Mm. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't think we're going to... I, th I think there's, there's, a, there's a quote from the Saudi oil minister from about, I think it's sort of 15 years ago or so, mm. uh, but he said, you know, the Stone Age didn't end because we ran out of stones. Yeah, you know, and the oil age won't end because we run out of oil. Yeah, okay. Mm. Mm. Interesting note, um, just as a food for thought. Mm. A battery is something that stores energy, yes. right? So uh, a tank full of petrol is also a battery. Yep, yep, and and so is so is uh, you know pumped hydro. Mm. Um, there's a lot of a lot of things that are um, you know can be used as batteries that are not a sort of that electrical yeah. uh, chemical reaction thing. So any sort of potential 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 energy laying in wait sort of thing? Yeah, that, that's just that concept. It's just because obviously with the electric vehicle thing, there's an obsession with getting the batteries right and, and then there's the argument that you're never going to have as much stored energy per weight as a litre of petrol in any battery you invent. Mm -hmm. It's just an interesting thought. Um, yeah, with the electric vehicle thing too, because I'm quite cynical um, and, and I'm interested in the life cycle analysis for a lot yep. of these renewables. And I read some, so I question mm. if, if these renewables in a lot of cases, like an electric car, is it actually better for the environment in, in, in most cases? And I'll give you an example. You've got a, 
an existing car and you replace it with an electric car. So then you've got all the energy it took to produce that electric car. Stuff had to get mined from all over the world and refined and manufactured already heaps of embodied energy in that electric vehicle. And the car you got rid of, maybe it just goes to the tip. So you've just wasted that embodied and embedded energy or whatever the term is. Um, and then you powered that electric car with a, a coal-fired a coal power station. So you're not using renewable energy. Mm. That seems like it's a, a bad environmental outcome. Yep. Um, and and, and the, just that, like, that's an extreme con, extreme example, but that's... Can I pick it's not, apart? I'll is, pick your apart when you... You can. Yeah. It's, it's not... Unre- yeah, so James said he was, he'll pick that apart and, and he's welcome to. Um, but that's not an unrealistic example. That, that does happen. You get non-renewable energy powering electric cars that had a lot of energy used in the process of making it. So there was this dude... Who, who wrote something saying that despite the life cycle analysis, electric vehicles are actually better than maintaining the combustion vehicles. Mm-hmm. Yep. And one, one of the things he, he went into was the, the durability of the vehicles. Yep. And um, even I think he, he mentioned, um, I can't remember, I think he might have mentioned something about materials. But anyway, he made a really good argument that uh, even even in situations where it looks like it's actually pretty crappy and a bad life cycle, uh, it's it's worse. When the life cycle analysis superficially looks like it's worse for the environment to have an electric vehicle, it's it's often better mm-hmm. too. Even even in what situations you think like it's probably not. So that that was a bit uh, interesting. I, I I was convinced enough by his argument to be less cynical about electric vehicles. Yeah, because yeah, I, I would think of it in terms of okay, well a a, a vehicle has gone to vehicle heaven or it would be it's sold at a you know a certain point of time anyway to someone else so that vehicle isn't lost you know the 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 first you know petrol vehicle um as you said the electric vehicles normally have longer um lifespan because they've there's less whole lot less moving parts whole lot th- less you know things that can break mm. they generally have a a much longer life expectancy and and with the coal stuff um Part of the problem is actually that because we have no storage, we have no energy or very little energy storage on the electric grid, we need baseload power. So we need coal-fired power stations because Mm. we've got no storage. Yeah. But you can imagine if every single car was electric or a large portion of cars were electric Mm. and most people have cars which are used, you know, a very small proportion of the time. So most of the time they're, say plugged in at home. Mm-hmm. So you you end up with a situation where if you don't have electric vehicles, you need baseload power. Yep. If you have electric vehicles, you don't need baseload power because you have a whole lot of electric vehicles uh, which can trade electricity. Mm-hmm. Um, and Tesla already has the technology up and, up, up and running, mm. um, which are plugged in most of the time. So... And obviously what happens then is the electrical electric vehicles buy energy when it's cheap. So mm. when there's there's too much energy, they just buy it mm-hmm. and then they sell it back when it's expensive, when there isn't enough being produced yeah. by the um, by power stations or whatever. So you can have a situation where um, you don't need a coal-fired power station because you've got electric vehicles. Yeah, so, so to, 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 to make a step back, yeah. to, to simplify that, you've got a... Uh, 
you've got a massive solar farm mm-hmm. and it's it's like it got tons of energy coming between nine and three in the afternoon yeah right? nine in the morning to three yeah it's producing tons of energy at midnight it's not doing anything yeah right so what you need is a giant battery to mm. store all that solar energy. Mm. But a giant battery is super expensive mm-hmm. and it's really only holding energy for a little while. So mm. it's, 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 it's really wasteful in some ways to have a giant battery yeah. to store this energy. Um, this is the intent behind hydro, high, Snowy Hydro 2.0, right? Mm. Like pumping the water back up the hill during off-peak times? Yes. Yeah, so while you're getting this, yeah, imagine you're getting the, sun, the solar energy then is used to pump water uphill and then mm. you release it downhill yeah. uh, at night time and that way you, um, you're, you're energy efficient in that sense. Yeah. Yeah, which it seems like a decent idea to me. But anyway, in this scenario, you've got this giant battery mm. that's been built to save all this solar energy mm-hmm. so it can be used overnight, right? Yep. And on top of that, you've got all these electric cars because, you know, we're, we're, we're super enlightened and, and yep. woke and everything like that. <laughs> the, the thing is, if you've got all these electric cars they are effectively a diversified battery. So instead of one giant battery, yeah. you get rid of that and say, we'll use the electric vehicles as a decentralized massive battery. Because you've got 10,000 vehicles, they can store as much as one giant battery. So when the car's parked because someone's at work and the grid's pumping out heat. Oh, like, yeah. So, so was, of, that's, that was my question. Yeah. It's like, when, did, when does the exchange happen? So it's like whenever the car's parked. Yeah. So yeah. like a, a charger is like a two-way... Yeah, yeah. So, so, and, and generally, uh, you know, uh, say, say for instance, people who have electric vehicles will have a plug-in at home. Yeah. But, but there's also, uh, you know, situations where people have plug-ins at work. And if you have it as a as part of the, you know, the electric grid where, mm. where there's parking, there's yeah, there's an exchange, and it is quite literally a, you know, the the ability to both receive energy mm. and also send back energy to the yeah. grid. And um, you know, the, the, you know, this is not high level technology to mm. have an automatic bid and, and ask system where yeah. um, you know you say you tell your car well today I'm only driving you know to and from work so I only mm. need you know twenty percent or forty yeah, percent okay. of a tank. Yeah. Make me money with the rest of it. Oh yeah so yeah okay okay. Yeah. So 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 it'll you know electricity's cheap it'll fill up mm. electricity expensive it'll sell. Yeah okay. Mm. You could have power companies subsidizing your vehicle mm purchase mm. on the condition that you plug it in overnight yeah we'll, 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 we'll take several thousand dollars off your electric vehicle on the condition that it's plugged in to the grid between nine and and three when we're there's heaps of solar mm. and then plugged into the grid from 6 p.m to 6 a.m yeah. mm. and and when you if you do that then you don't need baseload because it's kind of like you have your own you have a, a bit mm. ask system a diversified um you know if you have you know a large, say you have a large portion of yeah. people with vehicles are, are using electric vehicles mm. and are plugged in because they can make money because they're plugged in. Yeah. Um, then you don't need a system where, you know, we have to have base load. Yeah. Because you've always got drawing on people's batteries. That's mad. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not mad at that idea. Hey. Mm. So. Yeah. And in my scenario where you can keep your old car and then you, you get rid of your old car to get an electric vehicle, so you've yep. wasted all that embedded energy or embodied energy theoretically the cars that get removed from the system will be the worst cars Mm. so in i've got into electric vehicles even if i sell my car and then so my car sold second hand whoever bought it might have had an even worse car that they get rid of and eventually the worst cars leave the road which are usually the biggest 
fuel burning cars anyway. Mm. So you, you, one might argue that by buying an electric vehicle, you remove a terrible car from the road and then maybe you, you contribute to the potential decentralised battery solution. Mm. And the, the only other thing to add to that is that um, they're very expensive at the moment. Costs are coming down. The costs yeah. of batteries are coming down. Um, they, so it is. it does look like we'll eventually get to the point where you go to the um, you know, you won't end up getting a choice when you go to the um, auto dealer because mm. it's like this is what it is. What it is? Yeah, yeah. Because it's you can buy the cheaper electric car because there's a whole lot less components and the yep. battery now is very cheap instead of being very expensive. Mm. Um, or you can buy a more expensive, you know, petrol car mm. which costs more to run because you've got to yep. fill it up with petrol. Yeah. Um, apparently, electric vehicle costs about 20% of the to, – to travel the same distance through mm-hmm. with el- electricity. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you, we will eventually get to a point where, you know, the, the petrol option isn't available because who would buy it? We can't have yeah. a four buys petrol when it costs so much more. Mm. Yeah. And, and the other thing is, like, if, if you travel 100, day, 100 kilometres a day or 50 kilometres – I was going to run for a wee. You guys yeah. keep talking. Yeah. If, if you travel 10, 20, 30, 40 kilometres a day – Yeah, yeah. Then your battery only needs to do that. Yeah. And then it's like, oh, but every now and then I go to the coast and I need a couple hundred kilometres. Yeah. What if there's like an additional battery pack you can just hire from the service station? So, yes. you, you know you know those cars that are fully souped up and you can see like the <laughs> thing on top of the bonnet like, yeah. and they make lots of noise? Maybe you can just have a giant battery you plug in like that. Yeah. So you've got your fully sick car on the way to the coast and it's extra storage, but you don't own the battery. Yeah, yeah. The yeah. service station owns a battery. You yes. just hire it for your big trips. Yes, yes. And, and the, I mean, the, we mightn't even get to the – because the energy density is also improving, so we mightn't even get to the point where it's, it's actually a problem because – the you know if you look at the say the various models of Tesla or the electric vehicles coming out now they have much longer ranges than they did a few years ago, um, and the you know the energy density of the battery is is improving, and it's you know it's, it's something like the cost is going down by about twenty percent per annum and the energy density is going up by about five percent per annum. So um, I mean, to me, and once you get past say six hundred kilometres, something like that range, I don't think that becomes a. You know, there's not many people who would travel six hundred kilometres without you know taking a decent, decent break. Yeah. There's superchargers and all that. Anyway. Yeah. Well, one thing to add to that as well, the whole um, electric cars, Tesla, blah blah blah. When I was watching the Willy Wonka movie, the Gene Wilder one, not the Johnny Depp one, the Gene Wilder one's good. Um, I was like, oh, Elon Musk is um, Willy Wonka. <laughs> Elon Musk is the modern day Willy Wonka. Like yeah. everyone's like worshiping Willy Wonka. Oh, he's so inventive. He's the greatest man in the world. And you know, he kind of trolls people the whole time in yeah. in the movie. And and he's this you know great inventor who's who's a bit offbeat. And I'm like, that's Elon Musk is our version of Willy Wonka. Mm. So there you go. So in terms of uh, solar and or renewable energies and stuff. Is it worth me sticking my neck out to put solar panels on my house or do I wait for the government to sort that out? Well. And, and, and they do renewable energy and then I. I them, them government has um, already got some things around that. So on the yeah. ACT, you can borrow up to $15,000 interest free. Yes. To do renewables. Yeah. Renewable or, you know, energy efficient type things. So I crunch the numbers. Because it's like 10 uh, year payback or something. Yeah, yeah. Like in theory, it should pay itself back in like seven years or something. It depends yeah. how much you spend up front. But. I, I, I got a bit nerdy with this when I was doing it. And um, 
realized that I actually need like two kilowatts an hour. So all these guys are like, oh, get this 10 kilowatt battery, or not battery system, solar system. But if you, I have an app, Origin Energy has an app where you can look at your hourly electricity usage. And we don't use any electricity during the day. It's like less than one kilowatt an hour yeah. during the day. But then in dinner time, when you're cooking, using the dishwasher, and all you that have sort of stuff. At home through the day. Yeah, yeah. But, but I mean, you know, your fridge is running. That's that's a little bit. Yeah. Um, we've got a split system that you know it, it, most it uses one kilowatt in, in whatever room we're in. Yeah. But it's it's very low except for dinner time. Yep. When you you're cooking. Uh, we don't use gas. We've got electric cooking. So um, and and then you run the dishwasher, um, showers or whatever, if 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 the hot water's on for that, as getting as getting renewed. So I thought, well, a, a solar system isn't going to actually give us electricity at night time yep. when we're using it. And to offset the base load that we use or like the the, the daytime stuff, really only need like to offset one or two kilowatt an hour. Which yeah. means a super small system. Yeah. So I got your numbers and, and got a super small system. Oh, so and, you see, so you do you do yeah, have solar panels? Yeah, okay. yeah. You couldn't tell that I was better than you. <laughs> <laughs> I did get any. That was Andy's virtue signal. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you hate the planet so much, Andre? Why are you trying to kill the planet? Oh no, and no, because I'd like you know. You just hate like do you hate pandas and <laughs> koalas. It's the koalas that you want to kill, isn't it? I just really with your anti I just really panels. enjoy. Sky News and Peter Credlin. <laughs> Why are you so afraid of solar panels? <laughs> what well, do you? <laughs> well, well, you know, stop just burning stuff. You don't need to burn stuff while we're talking about. It. It's just bad for the environment. I actually did get a fire pit last weekend, and I've been been uh, ripping it up like every night. It's very fun. But, yeah, um, there you anyways. go. <laughs> yeah. So there's yeah. I mean, crunch your numbers, and and you, you'll find um, if you do the maths and do a spreadsheet that there's a business case for it for yeah, sure. Okay. Not a business case for batteries. And interestingly, mm-hmm. there's an Australian company. I can't remember their name, but they're supposed to be like super good batteries, twenty year lifetimes. Um, he's better for um, the cycles they can do and the energy they can store. Uh, there's various subsidised batteries if you want to get a battery, mm-hmm. but not the awesome Australian company. And you get all these like, you know, foreign companies, yeah. batteries you get subsidized, but not the super awesome Australian ones. Okay. So um, I'm going to see if I can find the name <laughs> so then people can write to their local member of parliament and say, how on earth are we doing subsidies where the taxpayer has to pay for it and we're subsidizing foreign batteries that aren't as good as the Australian one? Mm. I'll, I'll see if I can find the name now while you guys talk. Mm. Um, yeah, that's interesting because I did the like – I guess I just did like a really superficial calculation. I was like, well, by the time I've paid these solar panels off, I've got to replace them. Like, you know, it's that sort yep. of 10, 10 or so years. I, I guess that was what it was, like the cost at the time. And I was like, oh, in terms of like what I spend on energy, on, on electricity, mm. at that point, the, the payback was like, it was like quite a long, like 10 or 15 years or something like that. And then reading that you've got to replace your panels after about then anyways. So... Um, my my panel's a twenty five year warranty. Yeah, okay. I think the inverter goes yeah. more than anything. But yeah. I yeah. Don't know. I crunch the numbers and you long know, life panels. What what do you think of the uh the It's because it's interest free. The loan's interest free. That's why it doesn't like that's the benefit. Yeah. So um, it's yeah. Do you think there's much in the discussion of the waste from them? Like or they we're done with them and then we just ship them off to like poor countries to deal with? Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, there's, that's part of the life cycle thing. Um, yeah. Hopefully in 25 years, they've worked that out. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> when, when, one, when one in their warranty. I hope they work it out better than uh, I watched a, a documentary called 
not so green energy on Deutsche Welle mm. and the wind turbine f- uh, fan blades, mm. they can't do anything with them. Mm. And they showed this dumping ground. It was a desert. Oh, yeah. They literally stack them up <laughs> and then just push dirt o- over the top of them. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, no. um, I think in, in Amsterdam they made like a, a sun shelter, mm. like a bus shelter or something oh, out yeah. of one. But, yeah. It's it's amazing with that that it's this, – this has always been something that boggles my mind that – there's, there's obviously metals and various things that have been mined and concentrated and mm. made into some product. How is it cheaper to move a whole lot of dirt to get new metals mm. than this concentrated, you know, uh, you know, uh, um, say, for instance, with the wind turbine, with yeah. this concentrated turbine of metal yeah to not just melt that i mean obviously it's there's you know someone else has obviously done the maths with yes that and yeah, it doesn't yeah. make sense but but it does seem very strange that it would be cheaper to you know i don't know whether what they're made of but mm. um you know to get more of that stuff mm. dig it out of the ground or whatever you've got to do yeah and not just melt down this thing that's, that's already exists yeah, it's interesting that things don't stack up i was uh i was contemplating that uh potatoes at the supermarket are like five dollars a kilo but i can buy a kilo of potato gems for like 280 and they've just got potatoes in them but the, you know they're <laughs> chopped up and stuff and just, but, uh, yeah sorry <laughs> I, I can't find the battery <laughs> processing. but anyway yeah it's, it's an interesting thing uh government subsidizing some businesses and not others mm. yeah anything else to talk about uh, I've got like a lot of stuff, but uh, I mean, we've been talking for two hours. Uh, maybe we leave it for next time or it's up to you. Um, yeah, leave it for next time. Yeah, sounds yeah, good. Cool. Well, that was a very enjoyable conversation, guys. Thank you very much. Took a different turn. Yeah, that was good. <laughs> I think we we, uh, we definitely uh, definitely got rolling and it was good. I yeah. guess we'll uh, talk more next week or so. And- Cheers. Yeah, and and just um a, a thing like you know we're talking about renewable things and and batteries and electric vehicles and stuff and just want to make the point really clear. There's no point in doing anything that you consider good unless you tell as many people about it <laughs> as possible. So if if you're like one of those people who donates money to charity and and doesn't tell anybody. Yep. That doesn't actually have doesn't a positive count. impact in the world. Yes. Like silently helping people does no good in the planet. It's only good if you tell people you do it. <laughs> and in fact, you don't even have to do the thing. You just say that you've done it. Yeah. And that's also a, a good thing in the world. I was actually thinking about this, this <laughs> similar thing too with, um, uh, so uh, mum's new apartment is right next door to the Russian embassy, literally like across the footpath. And come Saturday, there's usually a protest and uh, they get people to honk. So pretty much all day. And just thinking, you know, what does that honking actually do? Probably nothing. But you could actively invest in like the war effort if you wanted to, you know, like buy shares in like Lockheed Martin or something. contribute to the development of javelin missiles and things like that. Interestingly, um, there was an argument that these guys should be in the ESG Indexes. So the SG index is a you know environmental sustainable. Mm. Yep. Was well, it growth? Is that the other one? But it's it's all the you know good feel good about what you do. Yeah. And um yeah, there was an argument that these weapons manufacturers should be in that index. <laughs> but Tesla was getting kicked out. Yeah, right? Tesla got kicked out. They of. just got busted for something. Oh, I think their employees are doing mm. an uprising for like racism and unfair dismissal and things like that. I just got a I just got an email about that. Haven't read about it. 
Yeah, right. Well, yeah. we'll see how the law operates and plays itself out. But yeah, yeah. Mm. there you go. All right, cool. All right, thanks heaps, guys. Talk Cheers. next week. Hey? Disclaimer. The information discussed on this podcast is for general information only. It should not be taken as constituting professional advice from Andy, Andre or any guest they may speak with. We are not your financial advisor. You should consider seeking independent legal, financial, taxation or other advice to check how the topics discussed on this podcast relate to your unique circumstances. We are not liable for any loss caused, whether due to negligence or otherwise arising from the use of, or reliance on, the information discussed directly or indirectly, on this podcast. Although Andy is the Oracle of Charnwood, he is not your guru.